if you could open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. We're going back to 1 John. It's been a while, but we are going back. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Actually, it's verses 12 through 16. So even though we covered verse 12 last time, I wanted to uh, continue that because it'll give us a little bit of a context. And what I want to do is ask you to stand for the reading of God's word as just a, a symbol and sign of our, of our reverence for all that God has done through his word and what he says to us through it. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And he has seen and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So for the next two weeks, we'll be covering a topic with the question of, is he with me? Is he with me? And it's an important one because it's one that perhaps, especially in difficult times, in times of trial, we're wondering whether that's true or not. Is God with me when it's hard, when it's difficult, when I'm facing tragedy, when it is a time of suffering? Is God really with me or has he left me? Has he abandoned me or was he ever with me in the first place? Yale professor Nicholas Walterstoff said this when he lost his son in a climbing accident. He said, when we have overcome absence with phone calls, winglessness with airplanes, summer heat with air conditioning, when we have overcome all these and much more besides, then there will be a, abide two things which we must cope, the evil in our hearts and death. Now more than ever, this is true. Because human history has always been to try to think of ingenuity to deal with problems. And the more we come up with technological advances to solve issues of comfort, problems, we tend to think that we're invincible. But this is a time where that is certainly not true. I mean, really, a single virus has essentially stopped the whole world from operating. Who could have dreamt that or imagined it? You know, it wasn't that long ago where luxury goods, the most expensive of cars, that's what people's dreams were. That's what people wanted to do. I read an article where the grocery store, it has over 50,000 items in it, the supermarket, and how this pandemic is going to change that dramatically because suddenly everyone begins to realize that those things that we thought we needed, we actually don't need at all. And choice, that big word that we dream about, I want all these choices in my life. I want to be able to travel to all these different places to choose whatever I want in the grocery store. I want 
out of 50 bags of potato chips with different flavors, I want those choices. And suddenly, when you can barely go to the grocery store without first wearing a mask and you know having to distance yourself from other people, those choices don't matter as much. The luxury goods don't matter. You know who's not making money these days is Instagram influencers. They're really losing big time. Because no one really cares about what a 20-year-old is doing inside his or her house with all the luxury goods of their life. This is a time where instead, as Nicholas Wolserself notes, we are contemplating the evil in our hearts and death. And during such times, we really wonder, is God with me in those moments? What if a loved one were to come down with a dreaded disease? What if they're admitted to the ICU? What if that loved one were to die? This question then becomes even more at the forefront of your life. Is God with me? So let's go back to 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, because John answers this question and he makes sure that we really do know God is with us. And the way we know that God is with us is four different ways. The first way we covered a while ago. The way we know that God is truly with us is according to verse 12, we love one another. When you love other people, you know God is with you. Second, and this is what we're going to emphasize today, we're going to spend most of our time talking about this today, is that the Holy Spirit, according to verse 13, indwells in you. You have the Holy Spirit residing, living, dwelling inside you. Thirdly, and this one we'll cover next week, is Jesus is your Savior and your God, according to verses 14 and 15. And then lastly, we'll cover again next week in verse 16, you have a love for God that's growing. There's a passion for him. So first, that first proof, that first evidence, that test that shows that you have God with you is that you love one another. You love other believers in Christ. It's not just a general love. You know, here's the thing about people is that people have feelings for those whom they're entrusted with. According to Matthew 7, 11, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. So when Jesus is saying that, he's saying, you know what, you people who are evil, who are self-centered, but even the most self-centered of people know how to give good gifts to their children. So really, people, regardless of whether they love God or love other people, they're pre generally pretty good to their children. And sometimes we think that's what it means to love one another is, oh, well, I take care of my kids. I'm good to my wife, to my husband. Jesus is saying evil people know how to do that. So that's not what it means here when, G when John is talking about loving one another in verse 12. It means so much more. It's not treat people well who treat you well. Rather, that's only the basic level of love. The proof that you know God is that you actually love people through pain and rejection and struggle when they're not good to you. And there's a love that's enduring and patient. It prays for one another. It helps us to persist and to persevere in love regardless of the return that we experience. We talked a lot about this last time, so we're not going to spend most of our time here but that is clearly the first piece of evidence, the first proof that you know that God is with you.
The second is one that is so instrumental. This is where we're going to focus most of our time in verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. So John makes it clear there. We know where he's in us because he has given us of his spirit. There is no greater proof and promise that God is with you than the fact that the Holy Spirit resides, dwells in you. Listen to what Jesus says in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, if you were the disciples and you're hearing this, would you think that were to be true? I mean, they had spent almost three years with Jesus, day and night. They had seen miracles. They had seen him do so many things. And so when he's telling them, it's better that I actually leave, they're probably thinking, no, I, don't, I can't imagine that to be true. Wouldn't it be better? And maybe you're sitting there thinking, I actually wish I could have Jesus sitting right next to me and talking to me and teaching me and telling me, isn't that better than what I have now, which is the Holy Spirit indwelling? And Jesus is saying, it's actually better if I go. Why? Why is it better that Jesus would go and the Holy Spirit would come? One is a very simple truth, and it comes from Hebrews 13.5. It's that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the only way Jesus can keep that promise is that he would have to go. Because here's the thing about Jesus. He is the incarnate son of God. He is a, he's in the flesh. So Jesus, while God emptied himself, made himself nothing, and he limited himself by his flesh. So there weren't 20 Jesuses walking around and so if Peter was over here running an errand and John was over here at the lake, it wasn't like Jesus was over there and over there at the same time. He was limited by his physical being. But when Jesus said, I'm going to go and the Holy Spirit was going to come, the Spirit is transcended. He is above time and space. So he can actually indwell in every believer of Christ so that he would Keep the promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is a, a critical promise and truth of the pro power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, you have to know the implications of this. First of all, there is no parent who can make the promise that they're always with you. They can't. They will one day die. Maybe as a parent, you've lost your child or vice versa. There are missing children, missing parents. Um, even the most well-intentioned parent, they're not going to, if, if they try to live with their child and be with their child every day for the rest of their life, all the time, it would actually be suffocating. It would be miserable. So no parent is going to play that role. No spouse, no sibling, no best friend, no one dear, no one can do what the Holy Spirit can do, which is to reside in you, to dwell in you, to guide you, to protect you, to lead you at all times. This is a wonderful promise for the Christian. That means that even if the worst thing were to happen, let's say, and some of you have heard the stories in Italy or in Spain, even perhaps here, where someone comes down with COVID, they go to the ICU and they're dying and 
you know, the, the doctors and nurses come in with all the PPE and they're, they're wearing everything and no relative can come and visit. What a, we, we hear that story and it breaks our hearts because imagine if a loved one, a, a, a father or a mother, a grandfather, grandmother is alone in the ICU and they die alone. That just seems so sad and tragic unless you are a Christian. If you are a believer of Christ, according to this verse, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. You are never alone. And he is always there with you. And he is proof positive that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Even if you're in an ICU, dying alone, you are not alone. What a promise. So, there is an important caveat that I give before some of these tests of knowing, how do I know the Holy Spirit is with me? If you've ever um, planted a vegetable garden and you take the seed, dig out a little bit of soil, you put that seed, you drop it into the soil, cover it, you start watering it. After a few days, a little shoot comes out of the ground. That shoot is so small. It is, I mean, you could blow and it'll be knocked over. You know, and you think, how does this little shoot lead to, and I've grown squash before. Squash, if you, some squash can be really big. It's hard to imagine this gigantic squash coming from that small little shoot. One little teeny little stem that comes out of the ground. But what happens is that despite all the, the different factors, bugs, wind, it's able to grow if things are okay. Well, we have this something called faith. And that grows because the Holy Spirit is the master gardener. And he, even though that faith is so weak, so small that it seems like but a mere breath of wind could knock that faith over. When the Holy Spirit is the master gardener, no matter how small, it can grow to produce gigantic squash. I mean, it can blossom in ways that we cannot imagine. So some people are in the phase where it's just that little bit of squash, that shoot that's so weak is just growing out, or they've already produced gigantic fruit. But the gardener is the same, even though the appearance of that shoot to the, to the big squash is vastly different. Know that if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, whether you, you have just turned to Jesus for the first time today, or whether you've been walking with the Lord for a long time and you've been producing a lot of fruit, if the Holy Spirit has been the one who produced that fruit, then whether it's small or big, you can rest assured God is in control. I want to say that because a lot of these tests that I'm going to show has this level of progression. Some people are at the very beginning. Some people are walking along in, in the middle, somewhere at the end. And so it's easier to hear this and say, oh, I don't see this so deeply in me. Well, it could be just that little shoot. It could be the big fruit. God is with you. If he's doing it, we can rest assured in him. So I want to give you quickly seven tests and then they're going to go fast. So don't think this is going to go for a long time. These seven tests of knowing whether the Holy Spirit is indwelling in you, uh, they come from Martin Lloyd-Jones he really does a great job of describing this. But to understand whether I am a believer of Christ, I have the Holy Spirit indwelling in me, these seven things should be happening in your soul. First is that 
we have a desire for the things of God. God actually matters to us. I know, again, please keep that in mind. There's a progression. You might be thinking, boy, I'm really not having that at all. There's a, 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 um, a journey and it starts and it progresses over time. There are also times where it dips. There are times where it really dips hard. It doesn't mean that we don't know him. But there is this, ultimately, this desire for wanting to know the things of God that I want to read his word. I want to be with other believers and to talk about Jesus. I actually want to spend time with him and commune with him in meditation and prayer. I want to serve the poor. I want to tell others about Jesus. These are all ways in which we are growing in the things of God. I also think it's not a bad thing to question whether I really know him or not. Every Christian at some point should ask that question because it is far more dangerous to assume I do know him and I don't, as the parable of the sheep and goats tells us that Jesus says. But it's possible that I could be struggling in faith while I'm addicted to something. You could be addicted to drugs, to physical appearance, addicted to the favor of people. It's possible to be a Christian and still have those type of sins. But if I have that in my life, I should be asking, do I really know Jesus or not? It's important to ask. We should be growing in our desire for him. Colossians 3.1, Paul says that we should set our minds on the things above, not on earthly things. And if we're not actually doing that at all ever, then we have to wonder, do I want to know him? Which then should ask the question, do I have the Holy Spirit indwelling in me? Which should then ask the question, am I a Christian? Second is that there's an awareness of our depravity. We know we are sinners. Sin is not moral failure. It's not, I do bad things every once in a while. Sin is, I am rejecting God and his commands and I'm turning intentionally away from what he promises. I refuse to trust him. There's a rebellious nature to it. And we should be really troubled by sin. Something in our soul should say, there's something wrong with me. That when we hear about mass murderers and human traffickers, we're not thinking, okay, those are the really bad people in the world, but I'm actually not so bad compared to them. Instead, what we see in them is we see in us a heart of rebellion against God and his word. And so rather than running away from that, we actually come to see that that's true of ourselves. And it bothers us. There's, there's something deep within us that says, I am aware that there's a depraved nature in my soul. And apart from Christ, I would be no different than the most evil person in the world. And so perhaps you have stolen something before or you've lied at work to promote yourself. Or maybe if you're a teenager, you've yelled at your parents, cursed them out even. And all of this, if that happens, even in the secret part of your heart, that should bother you. If it doesn't, then you have to ask the question, am I a believer of Christ? Do I have the spirit of God in me? Thirdly is, 
and again, I'm not, I'm not going to focus on this one as much because we're going to talk a lot about it next week, is that we believe in Jesus as Lord. He is the one who, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Do you see what the Holy Spirit does there? He points to Jesus and his words. That's what his, his role is, to show you how beautiful Christ is. And he loves to do that. The Holy Spirit, God the Son and God the Spirit, they are not in competition with each other to see who do you like more. It's not as though they're saying, oh, I hope, Jesus is saying, I hope, I hope Sam prays to me today. And the Spirit is saying, no, 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 no. I hope, the, I hope Sam prays to me today. That's not what's going on. They are delighting in each other. And the Holy Spirit loves it when we are looking to Christ, when we are remembering his words. And so he, the Holy Spirit, who is a person, he's not a thing and he's not a bird. He is a person and he helps us to love Jesus. He helps us to remember his words. He helps us to recount them. He helps us to want to pray to him. Next is that we are conflicted between our flesh and the spirit in us. That's what it means when we have the Holy Spirit. There's a conflict. There's a war. You know, to be a Christian does not mean your soul is, it, there's a peace there's an ultimate peace, but there is a conflict, a battle that is raging. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5.17. For the, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Wow, look at what Paul is saying. He's saying that in your soul, when you become a Christian— and the Holy Spirit then indwells in you. The Holy Spirit is now battling your heart that rages for depravity, for rebellion against God. And he is constantly pointing you to Christ, to Jesus. But we still, as long as we're in this world, we still are a sinner. We are declared righteous, meaning that God looks at us as righteous because of a declaration of righteousness by what Jesus has done but our righteousness is a legal righteousness. It doesn't mean that we're morally perfectly righteous now. There is still the struggle. And that struggle, that conflict actually shows us that we are a believer of Christ. If there was no conflict, first of all, you would be wondering, you should be wondering if there's no conflict on either end. Do I not see sin as dark as it is? Because if you think, wow, I never struggle with sin because I have the Holy Spirit in me. Well, then maybe you're not really understanding the deepest inner reaches of your soul where there's incredible self-centeredness still. Again, until we see Jesus face to face, we are still wrestling. On the other side, if there's only sin and a desire to turn away from God and refuse to trust him, and there's no real ultimate desire to want to confess our sins, to repent, to change, to turn, then we have to ask the question, am I a believer of Christ or not? To be a Christian means, it doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy. 
especially externally. But for your soul, there is an ultimate peace. That peace is happening even though there's a waging of battles. And that peace, I find that, here's one implication of this, is that when we sleep, when we go to bed, there's a, sleep is a real gift of God, in this world at least. And it reminds us that God is in control, he's sovereign, but it also gives us a sense that we're at peace. Ultimately, in our soul, the Holy Spirit is residing in us, so there's peace. Listen to what Psalm 127.2 says. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. So someone who's getting up early to work and then going to sleep late to work and to do all that they do. For he gives to his beloved sleep. God gives sleep, rest, and the psalmist tells us that sleep is God's gift to us. Now, some people abuse that sleep by being that lazy sluggard who slowly turns over to the other side of the bed because they're lazy and they can't get up. And I know some of you college students are waking up at 1 p.m., 2 p.m., 5 p.m. You're turning over slowly like a little lizard, <laughs> a sluggard. But sleep also we're supposed to sleep. If you have insomnia, if you cannot sleep, and I'm not talking about because of physical conditions. Some people have physical um, conditions that cause them not to be able to sleep. But there are many people who cannot sleep because their soul is not at rest. Because they've went to sleep working, and the key word here is anxious. They are anxious. And read Matthew chapter 6. Consider the lilies of the field, the birds of the air. When we are focused on what we cannot control, James 4 talks about the fact that we should not be looking at tomorrow. Instead, worry about today. This is the day that, this is the day that the Lord has made. And so God has given us these gifts, and the gift is meant so that we can trust him. And when we trust him, when the Spirit of God indwells in us, there is peace. Even though there's war, there's peace. And we can sleep and we can rest. This battle shows that we have the Holy Spirit with us. But the trust and prayer shows that we know that he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit is greater than your sin, your rebellion, your depravity, your self-centeredness. And he is changing you. Maybe you're still a little shoot. But he's changing you. That shoot will grow. It will grow. Next is, be aware, this is similar, that God is working in you. I don't know how many of you stop to think about that as true. God is doing a work. He's doing a great work, and it is not religious activity. This is not about going to church or feeding the poor or having a good moral family or prayer even. Religious, the problem with religious activities is that you can actually do religious activities, but your heart can be very far from God. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, God told Israel this, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. 
Look at that last part. You can actually be, quote, afraid of God, have a fear of him, but it's based not on a trembling inside your heart, but a trembling that has been taught. You've learned it as a ritual. Maybe because the only time we pray is when everyone else is praying. When everyone else is screaming out to God and calling out to him, that's when we call out to God. Religious activity, God knows it. We can't hide that from God. We can hide it from each other, but we cannot hide it from God. And so he knows what's really happening deep in your soul. According to this passage, the Holy Spirit changes your heart. He causes not just your actions to change. He causes your heart to change. And he's the one who changes the heart that leads to real action. He is the only one who can do that because man, um, institutions can actually change activity. Cult groups can change activity. So human beings can cause people to behave in a certain way. Look at what's happening now. Governments are causing people to act in a certain way, but only the Holy Spirit can change the heart. And so the Holy Spirit takes the proud person and humbles them. He takes the stoic and who is reserved and he melts their soul. He takes the completely broken and he heals that person. He takes the foul mouthed person and he brings words of encouragement and life through that person. He isn't the kinder, gentler grandpa. That is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the way I think of the Holy Spirit is, or like to think of him is the way David Wilkerson, who was a pastor of Times Square Church. He called him, he described him as the hound of heaven. When he goes after you, he goes after you like a hound. One time I was in Mexico on a missions trip and I was, uh, we, there was a guy who was uh, working with us. He was one of the native Mexicans and he had a pit bull. His name was Sargento. And he told us the story, this pit bull, he was very kind, very, very just, he was cute actually as a pit bull, small, strong, very small. He was not a big dog. Anyway, one time he was telling us the story of one day he was walking with uh, Sargento on the beach and in the other direction came this big Rottweiler and the owner was, um, he was just sort of saying in his, you could tell by his attitude, he was saying, my dog is better than your dog. My dog is stronger than your dog. And so the, this uh, friend of ours, he started moving away to go away from the, uh, the Rottweiler and the guy started going and turning into the path of Sargento and, and our friend. And he's like, you don't want to do that. Move away. And he just refused. And then eventually he dropped his leash and the Rottweiler came running after the pit bull. As soon as the Rottweiler came, Sargento pulled. And as the, uh, the Rottweiler came, Sargento went and grabbed hold of the Rottweiler's neck and refused to let go and was hanging, clinging on the neck. And the only way our friend was able to get Sargento off that Rottweiler is he had to take his pit bull and spin him around about six times where he had to rotate him for him to finally release his jaws. That's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I know. the Holy Spirit when he goes after you he will not let you go he is like that he is 
He's the hound of heaven. He's going to pursue you. And no matter how far away you run, no matter what type of attitude you have, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he grabs hold of you and he will never let you go. This is our God who works with us. That's what it takes actually to transform us, to change us, because our natural attitude is to say, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to go my own way. Every person, it doesn't matter whether you're a drunkard, whether you're a drug addict, or whether you're a business person or a really nice mom, moral person, it doesn't matter. It requires the Holy Spirit to be a sargento and to go and run and grab hold and to never let go. We'll go to the last couple. Next is that this person, when we have the Holy Spirit, we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, to 23. Listen to what Paul writes as fruit that is exhibited by the Christian. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, if you take, I mean, we could spend many messages on each one of those characteristics, but look at those and you might be thinking, and I want you to do this. Ask yourself, do you see this in yourself? Now turn to the other person and see if you see it in that person and ask yourself tonight, if you really want a rough exercise, Look to the person next to you and say, can you let me know, do you see joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in me? And go over each one of them slowly. Maybe go individually. You're probably going to get a lot of different answers. Because if the question is, a person who has the Holy Spirit, meaning a Christian, has one of these things if they don't have one of these things, that means that should make you question, is God with me? Do I have the Holy Spirit? Remember, that's why I began with the shoot and the big squash. The sh we can have the Holy Spirit, but maybe it's a little shoot that's just popped out. Maybe it's a little bigger. Maybe it's growing. So we're growing, but it should be growing. If this is completely non-existent, there is a, a real problem. Now think of a strawberry. Two strawberries, right? You go to the supermarket, pick up one strawberry in one pile, and you pick up another strawberry in another pile. Take one bite, and it's just juicy. It's red, juicy, delightful. The other one is red, too. You take it, and it's a little sour. You've experienced that, right? Both are fruits. It doesn't mean that that plant has not produced fruit, but one is sour, one is just perfectly sweet. They're both fruit. And I do think that for so many of us, we produce these fruits. If you are, have the Holy Spirit, we produce these fruits. But there's a growth. There's a change. It needs to grow more and more. We need to put ourselves into positions of seeing this type of growth based on our humility of turning to that person and say, help me to grow in these. Praying, oh God, please, I struggle with patience. I'm really wrestling with self-control. If you're playing video games all the time and you can't stop on your own, it means that you don't have self-control. If you're drinking every night and you cannot take a break from it, let's say you're in this pandemic and 
it's just really hard. I need to take this whiskey every day or else I just can't get by. You know, if that's your heart, you're wrestling. You have to wrestle. You can't say, ah, it's no big deal. If your spouse is saying, you need to stop. I need you to stop. And you're saying, no, it's no problem. If you can't stop, if you can't take a break, and I'm not, it's, this is not about whether video games are bad or evil or having a, a glass of wine is evil. There's nothing wrong with those two things. But if, according to this, the fruit of the Spirit says, I actually can control myself. I should be able to control my mouth, what I watch on television, what I eat. Again, these are, it's not to say that any of these things inherently are evil or bad. They're not. They're good gifts. Self-control. Again, I could preach a whole sermon on each one of these things. So you get the point. There should be a point where we should be able to say, I know, I see this in me. Or someone, you, you can say, I see that in you. It's small. It's growing. But I do see it in you. I see a little glimmer. I see hope in you. And that's the Holy Spirit. Next is, you identify as an adopted son or daughter. Listen to Romans 8.15. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. By whom we cry. Meaning the Holy Spirit is the one who, who sort of keeps you remembering that God is our Father. You're a son. You're a daughter. And He's the one who helps us to see that we treated our father like the prodigal. We're all prodigals. And we all are running away. But it's the Holy Spirit who brings you to your senses where you say, I need to go home to my father. He's the one who gets you to, to that place. And when you go home, the father runs. But we're even able to be in that place because it's the Holy Spirit who causes you to say, Abba, Father, you're my Father. I need you, Father. I trust you, Father. I want to believe in you. He's the one who solidifies your identity. And then lastly, here's the thing, is that most people, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? That's, if I were to say, what do you think about when you think about the Holy Spirit? Maybe you might say, oh, I, I think about tongue speaking. I think about prophecy. I think about healing. So, we have to mention the gifts because that is one way we exhibit that we have the indwelling spirit in us. But that gift list is quite broad and far ranging. And in it, Paul says that there's a most excellent gift, a most excellent, seek the greater gifts. And let me tell you, he ends chapter 12 of first Corinthians by saying, let me tell you of the most excellent way. And then he begins to talk about love. To love, if you are a person who has the indwelling Holy Spirit, you love the church. That's the purpose of the gifts, is to bring blessings to the church. You are a person who loves the church. And I tell you, and I began this worship by saying, I miss the church. This is not how it's supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be preaching in front of a camera and looking at my family. I'm not supposed to be leading worship every Sunday, presiding, doing all these things. I miss my family. I have an earthly family, but I have a spiritual family. This family, our church family, we're going to be together eternally. And the Holy Spirit has given the church different gifts. 
so that we can be the church, so that we can express love to one another. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. This is why this has to be temporary. It can't be like this. I hope you're not sitting there thinking, wow, I really love this. It's so comfortable. You know, I, I can just wear whatever I want. I can wear pajamas. No one sees me. I'm sitting in my own couch and everything. No. This is wrong. It's something's amiss. Something's seriously amiss. The Holy Spirit, because he's indwelling on us, he's saying, bring blessings. Love one another. Sh- express your gifts. Exhibit your fruits to other people. Without other people, we can't exhibit our fruits. This is what it means to have the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be a Christian. And if you have all of these things in some capacity, even the tiniest bit, even if you're just that little shoot that could be blown over, don't worry, first of all, the Holy Spirit's the gardener. He's going to keep you. Secondly is that you're growing and you don't have to doubt that he's with you. And first, remember, remember that he's never going to leave you nor forsake you. Now, if you do not see any of these things, then, dear friend, it's possible you might not be saved. And talk about a time where, we see, where we're seeing death counts rise. You need to turn to Christ. And if you reach out to him by confessing your sins and saying, I need you, Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is going to come into your heart and point you to Christ, to God the Son. So today, I hope you turn to Jesus and trust him. You can do that right now. Without him, there's ultimately only loneliness and emptiness. But in this place, the Holy Spirit can break through. He is the hound of heaven. He will come and pursue you. But open your heart to him. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, know that he is with you. He will never let you go. No matter how the circumstances should arise, even if you were to lose your job or even if a loved one or even if yourself were to get terribly ill, even if you're alone in the ICU by yourself, you are not alone. The Holy Spirit is dwelling with you and he will never let you go. That's God's promise. That is what Jesus' cross has accomplished for you. Let's take this moment to prepare our hearts for communion. We're going to, if you could... Um, Go to the table and get your bread, your wine, or grape juice. We're going to express together physically through this symbolic picture of our spiritual union together in Christ. So let's take a few moments to do that.